How do we know that the Bible is reliable? How do we know whether the words we have in our Bibles are really the words that were written? And how do we know that the words that we have describe real historical events? In the last few episodes of Thinking Theology, we've been thinking about where the Old Testament and New Testament came from, who wrote the 66 books we have, and how we ended up with those particular books. In this episode of Thinking Theology, we're thinking about the reliability of the Old Testament, both in terms of the manuscripts that we have and the external archaeological evidence that gives us confidence in the historical events described in those manuscripts. Hi, my name's Carl Denick. I'm a pastor, theologian, writer, and Bible college lecturer. Welcome to Thinking Theology, a podcast where we think about theology, the Bible, and the Christian life, not just for the sake of it, but so we can love God more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. How can we be sure that what we have in the Old Testament is really what was written? How well has it been preserved throughout history? Although most of the answer to that comes from outside the Bible, from fragments of documents and from archaeology, there is some evidence within the Bible itself of a process for the transmission and protection of the biblical text. For example, Deuteronomy 10 tells us that the tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written were preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. So too, in Joshua 8, Joshua copies out the law of Moses in front of all the people and afterwards reads it out to them. But more interesting is the command that was given to the king in Deuteronomy 17:18, where it says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. What's interesting about that is that each king would have produced his own copy of the law, but also that his copy would have been checked and approved by the priests. In other words, like with Joshua copying out the law in front of all the people, there's a mechanism specified to ensure that what the king copied was really accurate. But what other evidence do we have for the reliability of the Bible? The earliest complete copy of the Hebrew Bible that we have is called the Leningrad Codex, which dates from around 1000 AD. We also have something called the Aleppo Codex, which is from about 70 years earlier, but some of that codex was destroyed in a fire in the 1940s. Both of those codices are products of a group called the Masoretes. The Masoretes were Jewish scholars who lived between 500 to 1000 AD, and like the scribes mentioned in the New Testament, their task was to oversee and preserve the copying of the Old Testament text. Interestingly, the scribes were literally called sophorim, which is a Hebrew word that means to count, which seems like an odd description for people whose main job was writing. But the reason seems to be because they counted the letters, words, and verses in the text to ensure that what they copied was accurate. The Masoretes followed those same principles in their copying of the Old Testament text as well, but they were even more scrupulous. They would count the occurrence of individual words and other details to be even more sure that the copying they had done was correct. The care that was taken in the preservation of the Old Testament text 
really came to light with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s in a series of caves near the western shore of the Dead Sea. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls took our earliest copy of the Old Testament in Hebrew back another thousand years to the 1st and 2nd centuries BC. Among that collection was a complete scroll of the book of Isaiah, and a comparison of the scroll with the existing text of Isaiah that we had showed that the two were 95% the same, with the majority of errors being spelling differences and other minor errors like that. All the books of the Old Testament are represented in the Dead Sea Scrolls, except for the book of Esther. That's probably not because they didn't like Esther, but the Dead Sea Scrolls are from numerous different caves that have survived or perished to various degrees, and it's possible, though not certain, that Esther was among some of what perished. In case you're wondering, the earliest biblical text that has been discovered is a portion of the blessing in Numbers 6, 24-26. It was discovered in a couple of silver scrolls in a tomb in Ketef Hanom, which date from around the 7th century BC. But we don't only have copies of the Old Testament in Hebrew. The Hebrew Old Testament was also translated into other languages. The most famous translation is probably what is known as the Septuagint or the LXX, both of which mean 70. The name Septuagint comes from what is likely to be a myth, that the translation was done by 72 scholars in 72 days. In any case, it seems that the Septuagint dates from the 2nd and 3rd centuries BC. We know too that some of the writers of the New Testament had access to the Septuagint because sometimes when they quote the Old Testament, the wording of the quotation matches the Septuagint. As well as the Septuagint, there is the Samaritan Pentateuch dating from around the 4th century BC. Being the Pentateuch, it obviously only contains the first five books of the Bible. There's what are called the Aramaic Targums. They're like an interpretive translation of the Old Testament, a kind of message Bible for the ancient Jews. The dates of the various Targums vary widely from before Christ to sometime in the Middle Ages. There's also Jerome's Latin translation of the Old Testament in the so-called Vulgate. It dates from the late 4th century AD. And who could forget my personal favourite, the Syriac Peshitta, which dates from probably the 1st and 2nd centuries AD. It might seem that translations of the Old Testament are not that useful. Surely you would think the very best thing is to have the Old Testament in the original Hebrew. And in many ways that's true, but what the ancient versions give us is access to independent textual traditions. That is, When a document is translated into another language, it kind of takes on a life and a history of its own. So when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, for example, that began then two independent processes in which the text was copied. Greek-speaking people copied and used the Greek version, while Hebrew-speaking people copied and used the Hebrew version. Generally speaking, those processes didn't overlap. That gives us independent strands of transmission of the text that can increase our certainty about what the original text really was. The bottom line is that we can have extraordinary levels of confidence about the reliability of the text of the Old Testament. That is, we can be sure that the text we have is the text that was written, and perhaps more so than any other document from that time. 
But what about the events that are recorded in the Old Testament? How certain can we be about those? How certain can we be that they really happened? Over the years, especially since the Enlightenment, there have been many attacks on the historical reliability of the Old Testament. It needs to be said, however, that generally speaking, the Bible has come out pretty well as more and more archaeological discoveries have been made. One of the problems with archaeological evidence, of course, is its limitations. Hill and Walton note a number of limitations, first outlined by Edwin Yamauchi. They are that archaeology is limited because only a fraction of the evidence survives in the ground, only a fraction of the possible sites has been detected, only a fraction of detected sites has been excavated, only a fraction of any site is excavated, only a fraction of what has been excavated has been thoroughly examined and published, and only a fraction of what has been examined and published makes a contribution to biblical studies. Those limitations mean that we need to be careful when comparing the archaeological record with the Bible. They also mean that we can't expect the evidence from outside the Bible to confirm every event that the Bible mentions. That's not a problem that's unique to the Bible, but it's true for lots of events from the ancient world that we generally accept as having taken place. Nevertheless, what the external historical evidence gives us is good reasons for accepting that the Old Testament is historically reliable. It's like if you have a friend who comes and tells you a story that seems hardly believable. If you weren't there when the events occurred, one of the ways you can determine whether to believe your friend is by assessing whether or not your friend is generally reliable. If your friend is always making things up or always getting the facts confused, then you probably have pretty good reasons for doubting your friend's story. But if your friend is genuinely reliable, accurate, and truthful, then you have good reasons to believe your friend's account. That's the kind of evidence that we have for the Bible as well. For the most part, we don't have documents from outside the Bible giving parallel accounts of events, like maybe an Egyptian account of Moses parting the Red Sea or something like that. Instead, what we have is evidence that supports the general reliability of the Bible. Let me mention just a few examples taken from Kenneth Kitchen's book, The Historical Reliability of the Old Testament. First, Kitchen looks at the lists of rulers given in Chronicles and Kings. He notes that out of the 20 foreign rulers mentioned in Chronicles and Kings, all but two of the three are found in sources outside the Bible. The same is true of the Hebrew kings from 853 onwards, there's evidence for 9 out of 14, and there's plausible reasons why some of those that aren't mentioned might not be mentioned in the sources of other kingdoms of the same time. Kitchen also notes that the external evidence shows that the timeline of both foreign and Hebrew rulers in 1 and 2 Kings is impeccably accurate. So Kitchen concludes, the basic presentation of almost 350 years of the story of the Hebrew twin kingdoms comes out under factual examination as a highly reliable one, with mention of own and foreign rulers who are real, in the right order, at the right date, and sharing a common history that usually dovetails together well when both Hebrew and external sources are available. Second, for the earlier period of Saul, David, and Solomon, we have explicit reference to the House of David on something called the Tel Dan inscription, and probably on something called the Moabite stone. 
There's also correspondence between the descriptions of those kings and what we know of other nations from that time. So Kitchen notes that Solomon's relationships with other nations fit his historical setting. His temple and palace are like others from that period, and the amount of money that Solomon collected for his kingdom is comparable in scale to other empires of his day. Third, we have archaeological evidence for some specific events that are mentioned in the Old Testament. For example, Isaiah 36 to 37, as well as 2 Kings 18 to 19 and 2 Chronicles 32, report the Assyrian king Sennacherib's assault against Hezekiah and Jerusalem. But historians have discovered a hexagonal clay cylinder in which Sennacherib boasts of imprisoning Hezekiah in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Another personal favourite of mine is that we have rations tablets or records from Babylon for Jehoiachin who was exiled there with his family in 594 BC. The records show that Jehoiachin received a certain quantity of oil. So too we have something called the Cyrus Cylinder, which records how Cyrus, the king of Persia, allowed captives from Babylon to return to their homelands. Although no mention is made of the people of Judah on that cylinder, it does demonstrate that the Edict of Cyrus recorded in Ezra 1 and 2 was part of a wider program undertaken by Cyrus of returning people to their homelands. But to make a long story short, the point is really that there is reasonable archaeological evidence that supports the general reliability of the Bible. So we can have a high level of confidence that the words that we have in the Old Testament have been reliably transmitted to us from those who wrote them, and we can have a high level of confidence that the authors of the Old Testament are reliable historical sources that accurately wrote down the events for us. That's all we have time for in this episode of Thinking Theology. In the next episode, we'll be thinking about the reliability of the New Testament. So please join me then. Thank you.